in all of our love for our children, we are treating their issues in absolutely the wrong way. We are giving them medications because we think they're sick and because they think they have behavioral issues. What they have is a need for our love and our attention. Come learn about it. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Erica Commissar, a clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, author, and Wall Street Journal op-ed contributor. She works with people of all ages, especially kids, to overcome depression, anxiety, and compulsive disorders with an empathic approach that helps patients to make better choices and take thoughtful action in their lives. Erica's seen firsthand the vital importance of family support and interaction in the development of these disorders. And she's also seen the damage that can be done by simply treating them in a traditional medical way. She's the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And her recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, We're Overmedicating Our Children, paints a frightening picture of the dangers of the current treatment practices for children with depression, ADHD, and other psychosocial issues. You can learn more about Erica and her work at commissar.com. Welcome, Erica. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You know, I read your op-ed. I have a passion and just a frustration and fear with the entire pharmacologic over-medicating, I think, our entire society and children in particular. And I read your op-ed and it just struck a raw core. And I said, I have to talk to you because I can't think of anything more important than having people aware of the dangerous practice that it is, but also you get underneath to a different place. While everybody's talking about too many drugs and switching drugs and cost of drugs, you actually are looking at the underlying, where's the root of it? And that to me is such a critical thing. So can you paint the picture of what was in that op-ed? Give the high level of what's going on and then we'll go from there. Well, I mean, I wrote the piece because in my practice over the past 25, 30 years, I've seen this increase in medicating children at a younger and younger age for um, things that aren't necessarily um, about you know, physiological problems, meaning um, these are emotional issues, they're children's response to stress and psychosocial stressors such as family issues or trauma or neglect or the pressure to achieve, um, and that I was seeing this increase in just wanting to silence symptoms um, rather than really look at the underlying issues, which are uh, that of emotional regulation. I mean, we have a whole many generations now of both children and adults who don't know how to regulate their own emotions and aren't resilient to stress. So you told a story, there's a story I think that this paints a really important picture because a lot of people say, not here, not in my house. And there was a story of an eight-year-old that had ADHD and their parents had divorced when they were three. Can you tell that story? Because I think that is a perfect example yeah. of what we're, what's going on. Well, I mean, again, many children are diagnosed with ADHD who don't necessarily have ADHD. So ADHD is, um, I mean, there is an organic condition, but for the most part, the symptoms we're seeing that are being so quickly um, diagnosed, or I should say misdiagnosed, are not often ADHD. They are a response of the brain to stress. 
So that boy um, was diagnosed with ADHD, but didn't necessarily have ADHD. Um, what he has, what, what he had, was this response in the brain to stress, which causes the symptoms that seem like ADHD. And, um, and again, this was a kid. He was eight years old. His parents had divorced when he was three. Yeah. As I recall from the story, there was a lot of pressure on him yeah. to perform. Yeah, that's right. Because stress actually, um, and if you think about what the fight or flight response in the brain is, that the brain responds to stress in various ways. Um, and one of the ways it responds to stress is to become aggressive, uh, meaning the behaviors that are associated with uh, a child who, whose brain is, is, has too much stress is to become aggressive. The other is to flee, which we see in symptoms of basically being um, hypervigilant or very active. Um, you could say it's the flight part of fight or flight. So these are children under stress, and rather than looking at the stress that's causing these symptoms and these behaviors, we're just wanting to silence them. Um, parents want to silence them. Educators want to silence them so they can do better on tests and do better in school. Um, and even, I hate to say it, but practitioners um, who are not that well versed in and this issue also just say take a pill silence the symptom rather than really wanting to understand where these symptoms come from and where they come from is stress so, so we really need to uncover what what kind of psychosocial stress that child is under and then address that issue so paint the picture because you've got you're you're in private practice and you've got these yes. families that are coming in there and they've they're coming in and they're saying doctor fix my kid Right. And then you look, what are the stories that these parents are telling, and how do you help them see their role in it? Well, I mean, parents are coming to their practitioners or to the schools and saying, you know, look, my child is exhibiting symptoms of ADHD, like being extremely active, being very distractible, maybe being more aggressive, um, having trouble focusing. Um, and the schools and practitioners, you know, um, you know, pediatricians are, are you know, cooperating and saying, um, you know, take medication, just silence these symptoms. Instead of sending them, so, so what we know now from a recent study um, is that most children are not getting the kind of proper diagnosis and treatment that they need. Um, they're just being silenced. Right, and but that's let's back. Really a problem. Let's yeah. back up. I want to go back to what the, what's going on that drove them there. So I want to paint this picture of what's what's happening in that family. So your book talks about mothers needing to be home for the first three years of life so that they can bond with their kids, right. and then even beyond that, are homes that are how are the how are the parents putting stress on it? Like how do we paint right. this picture for people that are listening of What's going on in these houses? What's the parent parental interaction with each other? You know, right. instead of saying "great job," they're saying, "How come you missed this?" Like, what 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 are these kids hearing? What are the messages they're getting that's creating this stress on them? Well, go back to the very beginning. So, the ability to regulate one's emotions, meaning the ability to not go too high or too low with your emotions, the ability to be resilient to stress in the future meaning we're all exposed to stressful things, but the ability to cope with those stressful things is called resilience. Um, and also other things like the ability to be empathic or to read social cues, these are all developed in a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, the right side of the brain, um, which is connected to the limbic system, which is also the stress-regulating part of the brain. This is all developed in the first three years. So you'd say in the first three years of a child's life, it's that moment-to-moment 
comforting and soothing um, and reflecting of their emotions, what we call sensitive empathic nurturing from their mothers or primary caregivers that basically builds into that child the ability to regulate their emotions or what we call self-regulate going forward. It also builds into them, meaning mothers buffer children from stress. This moment-to-moment soothing a baby um, is really buffering a child from stress. And that buffering in the first three years is then internalized at what we say at a thousand days, at three years, as the ability to, to be able to be resilient to stress in the future. So when a child doesn't get enough of that um, moment-to-moment soothing and nurturing, and we know that many mothers and primary caregivers, if they're fathers, um, are stressed themselves, very anxious, have to work to make a living, or you know, are not home with their babies in the first three years. And what we're finding is really um, the, the consequences of that. Um, and again, you know, I, a lot of mothers say to me, um, you know, this makes me feel so guilty. And it's really not meant to make people guilty. But at the same time, we have to understand where stress regulation and emotional regulation comes from. Where, you know, the idea that children should just be resilient to everything we throw them into um, is just not realistic. I mean, it is a biological function that mothers serve in the first three years. So in those first Um, three years... That doesn't mean that after that three-year period, if you miss that, all is lost. Because mothers and primary caregivers can serve the same function for children going forward. If you miss those first three years, you can still, as I say in my book, and there's so much in my book that mothers can do to repair and fathers um, what they missed in the beginning. But that is where things like stress resilience and emotional regulation come from. So yeah, so um, I want to talk actually later on about yeah. the now what, like what do people do about it once they've missed yeah. their three years? Because a lot of people have. And you and I were joking before that you know when when you and I first talked, I was a working mother as well. So yeah. I and I was not home with my kids those first three years. So now I've got great relationships with my kids, but I've got, I'm one of those racked with guilt people. Um, But just, so to paint the picture, so we've got children that did not, if they, if they weren't, if the parents weren't there, if the mother wasn't there, if they weren't given a, what I'll call a safe environment, they didn't develop their emotional um, security and safety. And they just, I'll call it, don't feel safe, quite safe in the world. Yeah. And, you know, the part of the brain called the limbic system, there's a little almond-shaped part of the brain called the amygdala, which is part of the limbic system, which is this stress-regulating part of the brain. And really, it's not meant to come online for the first year, meaning babies in other parts of the world are literally worn on their mother's bodies. So there's very little stress that they're exposed to in the outside world. And so that little part of the brain doesn't actually even come online for a year. Um, but we know that, you know, we are leaving babies much earlier. Babies are exposed to stress much earlier. We even sleep separately from our babies, which is not done in the rest of the world, which is literally separating a baby from its source of comfort. Um, and so, you know, think about all these things as turning this part of the brain on too early. This, this little part, almond-shaped part of the brain starts to inflate and get more active and gets enlarges essentially. Um, And when it enlarges too early, it actually at some point burns out because it it just ceases to function for that child and it ceases to be able to regulate stress. And then you have these symptoms that we're seeing like ADHD um, and early signs of aggression in children. We're seeing more and more of that. 
So let me challenge one thing, and then we're going to come back to talking about the, um, I'll call it the co-conspirators in the medical community and the teachers and all of that. Um, so 100 years ago, the mothers, and even you know when I was young, when 50, you know, 60 years ago, 55 years ago, my mother was around, but she wasn't hanging with me. Right. She wasn't playing games with me. She wasn't, she, I, you know, so, so what's different now than 50 years, 100 years ago? They were a gaggle of kids. Mom wasn't cooing into their baby's eyes. They weren't having necessarily those soft romantic moments either. And yet those kids were not displaying the same behaviors of ADHD, can't focus, um, aggression, stre- like all this cascade of symptoms and behaviors that are going on now? Well, that's a very interesting question. So um, the answer is that it's better to be there both physically and emotionally. So we know that we're always better off and children are always better off when they have the physical and emotional presence of their mothers. Not every single moment, it's not possible. You know, you have to go to the bathroom, you know, you have to take a shower, you have to cook dinner. I didn't do that alone for the first years of my kids were always with me. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on radio, but you're allowed you have to go take a pee and you know, you're not always there every second. They no, they were with me. That that the shower and the bathroom somehow they weren't alone. It was the time I went to work, right? Right. Well, so so the idea is um but but being there as and that's what my book says, being there physically and emotionally, um, from moment to moment in the first three years as much as possible is what really creates that emotional security and that foundation for stress resilience and emotional regulation. Now, what happened years ago is that mothers weren't necessarily, I mean, all of them, that emotionally attuned. We've certainly become more sensitive, but mothers acted on a more instinctual, empathic, sensitive level that's tied to something called oxytocin. So they didn't necessarily know the right words to say, but they understood the idea that touch and physical presence was a very important part of of stress um, buffering and emotional regulation. So that child who was playing in the other room themselves but had the mother in the other room with another child or cooking, that child could go and do what Margaret Muller called um, emotional refueling, which is that as children get older and they're toddlers, they don't necessarily need their mothers hovering over them. You know, we have another issue when we have mothers kind of hovering over children. Yeah, that's it's another children. conversation for another day. The, yes, I'll, I'll right. talk to you about that another right. conversation. The, the, the copter, snowplow, yeah. mother. But, but that child still needs to what we call touch base. It's called rapprochement, which is they go back and forth. They go get a snuggle from their mother or whoever their primary caregiver is, and then they can go off and explore the world again and go play a game by themselves. But it's the concept that the mother is available enough to them that they can go back and feel safe. And it's that, it's that kind of back and forth, that emotional refueling, that actually builds, um, builds security in the idea of separating in an organic way. You know, so attachment is incredibly important for emotional security but so is separation healthy separation so 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 in a way by forcing our children to separate us from us before they're actually emotionally ready forces them to develop what we call defensive independence these defenses that make them seem very self-sufficient but underneath they're very emotionally insecure so that is to answer your question that child whose mother had a lot of children and was still home that child could still go back and forth and do uh, emotional refueling. Got it. Okay. So somewhere just the 
the world was different then. The moms were around and they they right. instinctively touched and all that. Okay, so now let's come back to today. So now these kids are stressed and they're displaying these behaviors. You know, there's there's symptoms of their of the stress. They're, dis, they're disruptive. They can't focus. They're depressed. All these things. Right. And again, the numbers. I just want to say some of these numbers. If I if I read these numbers correctly, seven million children below yep. 17 are on some kind of drugs, including um, kids zero to one years old, almost over half yep. a million kids are on yep. psychotic drugs, antidepressants, antipsychotics, anti-anxiety. Infants are on this. Kids less than five years old. So these kids are running around. Who, in whose right mind are they diagnosing these kids with these stress disorders that should be medicated. So the parents come in and go, I have a problem. My kid's not behaving. How can the doctors and the medical practitioners think that this is an okay treatment versus asking what's going on in the family? What's going on for you? How do you interrupt? Here's a prescription. Play, play, you know, go color with your kid tonight for 20 minutes. Right. Like, well, I mean, to be fair to, to many of the clinicians around the country, there aren't enough mental health services in some parts of the country for all of these children and these families that are under stress. But there is also um, now a, uh, a system in place where pediatricians can themselves give out this medication um, without that child being properly diagnosed by in the, someone in the mental health field who is an expert on this. Um, also, many of these children are being given and their parents are being given uh, a questionnaire that is a few pages. And, and as a result of this questionnaire, they're being medicated. So, you know, people who are very serious about this take it very seriously. And they do not give out this medication easily. And it is the last line of defense, not the first line of defense. So the um, American Pediatric Association said that the first line of defense should always be talk therapy or play therapy with children. That's the first line of defense. Sometimes that is um, also um, connected to medication if the talk therapy alone doesn't work, but the first line of defense is always therapy. The problem is in this country, our first line of defense has become silencing symptoms and medication. Well, and we have to turn that around. Well, and also it sounds like there should be a piece of it that's an education for the parents. Right. That these kids, again, they're, they're blaming these behaviors as though there's something wrong. And there is something wrong, but not with the kid. These are simply well, ways that these kids are trying to get attention of their parents because they need them. And it's why I do, I mean, it's why I do parent guidance. Right. Meaning, so... For the most part, my parent guidance practice is me speaking to parents about their children, um, about their children as young as two years of age, and about their children's behavior, and it's by helping the parents to change the way they interact and the way they think about and the way they are empathic towards their children, meaning the way they understand what's causing their children's behavior, that the children's behavior changes. So it's through changing parents that the children change. Right, and the parents have to be willing to listen and to make That's those changes right. versus to hear it in some other way or deny it because, oh, by the way, they have to get to their whatever, golf game. Right, and it's much easier to, to say to your pediatrician or to a teacher, there's something wrong with my child, it's not me. Um, and you know, also, as you said earlier, what about guilt? How does guilt play into all of this? And I think when parents 
um, do feel guilty. It often means that they avoid um, their contribution to things. And for me, guilt is a very useful tool. I do not see guilt as a bad thing. I actually see guilt as a helpful thing. It's what we call a signal feeling, like physical pain. So if you break your ankle running or playing basketball, no one in their right mind would tell you that you should keep running on that ankle because it's broken and you're in physical pain. So the physical pain is a sign that you should go get help. For some reason, when we feel guilty, it's a sign that our conscience is working, that maybe we're making a decision that may not feel right to us. And instead of society saying, this is a signal feeling, go get help with this feeling, you might make a different decision or you might come to peace with the decisions you've made. We tell parents to avoid their feelings. We tell them, don't worry. We say to women, you know, don't worry, your kids will be fine. That's not the point. The guilt is a signal feeling. So parents will then avoid looking at themselves or being self-reflective about their behavior or their contribution to their children's behavior. Yeah. All right. So let's talk for a second about, and I I presume I know the answer to this, but I just want to get it on the record. So now these parents, they go, they'd much rather have their kid diagnosed with ADHD because then their kid has a diagnosis. It couldn't be them being wrong, right? So I think that now they're socially acceptable and they've got the medications for the kids. I presume the kid that these things, A, don't heal anything and B, it's all, they're, they're risky side effects. So now we've got kids that it's making it worse for them in some ways. What's happening to these kids that are on these medications? Well, that's also a very good question given, I don't know if you saw the Harvard study that just came out that um, these stimulants that are uh, used to treat ADHD are now connected to um, the development of psychosis in children. Um, and there's another study that just came out that connects these medications like Vyvanse and Adderall and Ritalin to becoming addicted to these medications. So not only is addiction one of the side effects, but possibly psychosis, things like suicidal ideation, increased irritability, anxiety, sleeplessness. I mean, you're basically giving your child a stimulant. Right. Think, think of the amphetamines that people used to take in the 80s for weight control and how we found that they were terribly unhealthy. That's essentially, you're giving your children a stimulant. Right. Um, and so those kinds of stimulants can have very, very negative effects, including things like increased anxiety, suicidal ideation, psychosis. Um, yeah, really bad side effects. So and, the, you're not getting to, and you're not getting to the root of the problem. Well, exactly. Right? So I was you're just... not really helping your child to become more emotionally mature or resilient to stress in the future. You're basically just relegating your child to becoming addicted to these medicines. Exactly. I was just going to say also, so, you know, there, it sends them into this cycle. So everybody wants to be up in arms about the, the growing suicide rates, right, which is horrifying and tragic and yep. just can't say enough sad things about it. So kids are killing themselves. Kids are right. killing each other. Kids are displaying aggressive behavior toward each other. There right. are, you know, they, they want to worry about mass shooters and go after the guns. And nobody says, look in the prescription you know, look in the medicine cabinets of what's going right. on. And how many of these kids, I'm sure the vast majority of these kids are on some kind of medication and they're in denial, or is it politics? Well, you know, again, I'm, I'm also I mean, going to add, I also want to add to what you just said, that the world has become a much more stressful place. So, you know, that means that because the world is a more pressured place for us, and for our children because there are more dangers and risks than there were before. 
um, including things that our children have to think about that we didn't have to think about. You know, I mean, the climate change and the world ending and, you know, just terrible things that they actually talk about and think about and are exposed to. Um, and, uh, you know, how achievement-oriented our kids have to be just to get on and get into college and get jobs. And so they're, they're in a much more stressful world, which actually makes it even more important that they have that kind of proper foundation and that they're emotionally secure as a start to help them to deal with the increased stress. Yeah, actually, I want to go to the talk about emotional regulation and resilience. But before I do that, I'm going to challenge you on that. And I think that actually it's the lack of emotional regulation and resilience that is really taking root here because... Yes, it's stressful. Yes, we've got all this pressure. Yes, these parents are crazy town about getting their kids into colleges that they don't belong going to. But I do not subscribe to the opinion that today is more stressful than it was during the Great Depression when people couldn't scrub two nickels together to feed their family. And that went on for 10 years. Or that during World War II, when Mm -hmm. your husband and your father was across the ocean, there was no FaceTime, there was no cell phone, there was no texting, you had no idea where they were, you had no idea what food you were gonna get if you were gonna get bombed tomorrow, that today is more stressful than what they went through in London in the Blitzkrieg. But again, if you, you have all of those external or what we call environmental stressors, and you've had more of your mother and more of your family and you've just had more in the beginning, you're more prepared to deal with the stress. So we have different stressors than World War II. We have things like social media, easy access to drugs. I mean, things that kids didn't have in, in, in the Great Depression or in times of World War II. But again, I'm going back to where does emotional regulation and resilience to stress come from originally? What forms the foundation? You know, I always use the three little pigs analogy. You know, if you build a house of bricks, that house can withstand any storm. If you build a house of wood or hay, that house will blow down when the first storm comes. So our storms are different than the storms of earlier times. And in some ways they're they're worse. Um, But, you know, as you say, there were terrible things happening then, but the foundation was there. Families were still intact. Families still lived together. Mothers still raised children, at least in the beginning. Um, So it's really become a very different world than, you know, 100 years ago. Right, exactly. And that's where I wanted to go. So that that's, yeah. we, we didn't even rehearse this. <laughs> that, uh, you know, so that, exactly. So that then they they had built in because the parents were there. So let's walk through the emotional resilience and the emotional regulation. Um, okay. That because they had that basic foundation, whereas now it's lacking. So right. let's just, again, you, you referred to it, you talked about it a little bit before. Let's go into that a little bit in more detail. So let's redefine emotional regulation, what it is, why it's important, where, you know, where that develops, and then we'll talk about the resilience aspect of it because right. these are what's so lacking. So emotional regulation, again, is, is what keeps us from getting depressed or anxious or when we're angry, keeps us from getting enraged. So what, you know, what is the balance in our emotions? and it keeps us from going too high or too low. When we feel disappointment, we don't necessarily go into depression. When we feel anger, we don't go into rage. When we feel sadness, we don't go into despair. Um, and it's, it's a metronome in all of us. It keeps us ticking, it keeps us steady, right? Keeps the ballast in the boat. 
And for the most part, that actually is not something that children are born with. We are born with something called either sensitivity or less sensitivity, aggression or less aggression. That is constitutional. So all babies are born uh, with a constitution. And what the research shows is that some babies are born more sensitive than others um, biologically, genetically, with something called the short allele on the serotonin receptor. So there are some babies that are just constitutionally born more susceptible to things like depression and anxiety. And for those babies, it's even more important to have a mother or primary caregiver there to soothe you from moment to moment to keep the ballast in the boat. Um, there was a researcher that, you know, there's a lot of research in my book. If people really enjoy reading, you know, about the research behind this, because these aren't my ideas. This is, this is based on thousands of pages of research, different research. Um, and basically, the researcher that I interviewed in Holland, a woman named Judy Mesman, said, well, you know, in other parts of the world, newborn babies don't cry nearly as much as they do in the Western world. And she said the reason is because mothers actually carry their babies on their bodies for the first year. They breastfeed for the most part, and they sleep with their babies. They don't separate their babies, and they don't leave their babies in the care of others or in daycare. Or They're not separating from their babies prematurely, so the babies actually kind of live in a safe zone. You use the word safety. They live in a safe zone in the first year of their lives and up to the first three years of their lives. Um, that safety gives them the foundation to build the emotional security. It's, um, the father of attachment, a man named John Bowlby, called it the scaffolding, um, meaning every child has a scaffolding that's built. And that scaffolding is either a scaffolding that teaches you that the world and the people that care for you are reliable and that when you're in distress, you will be comforted. And that scaffolding then is the foundation for emotional security. So going forward, you internalize that. So even when your mother's not there after the age of three, you feel she's with you. That is what emotional regulation is. Okay. It's based on that moment-to-moment -moment soothing um, that keeps the baby's ballast in the boat. And then does that lead, the, the stronger the reg, emotional regulation, the more resilient they are so that they can right. handle? Because in addition to regulating their emotions, mothers, by doing that, are also protecting, remember, they're creating a safe zone. They're protecting the baby from stress. That protection is then internalized by the baby at three years as safety and security. So no matter what they do, no matter where they go, the exploration that they have, they feel safe. And even after the age of three, um, you can watch three-year-olds, even three to five-year-olds, doing this, what, what Mahler called, Margaret Mahler called rapprochement, this back and forth with their mothers, going to touch base. I mean, toddlers do this all day long. Mm -hmm. They go and they touch their mothers, and then they go off and play in the playground. And they'll even look back to make sure their mother's still there. So it's this kind of emotional refueling that actually further reinforces this idea that they're safe and secure, and that is the foundation for being resilient to bad things that happen in life, what we call stress resilience. Got it. All right, so now we have a generation of young people who are lacking in emotional regulation, lacking in resi emotional resilience, and we have a whole bunch of people listening that are going, oh man, it's too late. I don't have, you know, my kids are older. So what now what? Let's talk about what, because what, you said that 
it's you know it's never too late and that there are things that parents and families can do to help their children um, to develop it even if they're beyond the three years old and it is never too late um, I mean there is a point at which it becomes harder and I would say that point at which it becomes harder is after the second the first critical window of brain development for emotional regulation and stress resilience is zero to three there's a second window of critical brain development and it's adolescence which is what I'm writing now I'm writing a book about the second critical window of brain development which and- is nine to twenty five and that, that's so funny. I never think of adolescence as that long. Oh, it's even longer. Because I think <laughs> of adolescence as, as, as like as preteens. As brain development. Yeah. Now we can actually see when the brain stops really developing to the same degree, and it's about 25, meaning when the synapses stop. There, there's a period between 9 to 25 when the synapses are growing and pruning. And so that is what we call the second critical window of brain development. There's kind of a reorganization of those structures of the brain that are responsible for emotional regulation and stress resilience. So if you've had a good foundation, zero to three, it makes adolescence much easier for you. If you didn't, then it makes adolescence harder. And oftentimes adolescence is the period where if you don't see a breakdown earlier in a child, you'll often see them break down in adolescence. So now that makes sense to a lot of people because they'll say, well, my child is 21 and in college and that's not adolescence, is it? Yes, it is adolescence. And so that's that's when many children do break down if they didn't have what they needed earlier on. Having said that, that also means that you as a parent still have influence over that child's brain development between 9 to 25. Yeah, I always thought I was done after the minute they hit kindergarten that, you know, it was all about the kids and they were done listening to me. Like you've right. got... And- well, people think that about adolescents, too, because right. their teenagers push them away, yes. and they say, oh, they don't need me anymore. Now I can go get a full-time job, or I can travel, or you know, I can leave mm-hmm. them home alone. Or, um, and, and the point is, no, they may seem like they don't need you, but they, ju- they need you as much as they did in a different way. Okay, so what, should, so I'll call, what are the three things parents should be doing from 9 to 25? So how do they, so, how do they help? How do they overcome? Where, what do they need to do? It's actually similar to what they do earlier on. So interestingly, I'm I'm not saying, you know, buy my second book because there's a lot in there that is specific to the issues of adolescence, but one of the things that parents need to remember is they need to be as present as possible for their teenagers, both physically and emotionally, in a different way than when they're little. When they're little, they literally are doing rapprochement and they're needing soothing from moment to moment. So in the first three years, it's a moment-to-moment process. It isn't a moment-to-moment process, but the problem is, and this is the way I think about it, Teenagers will let you in on their timing, meaning they'll let you in when their door opens. If no one is there when their door opens, and that's both a real thing and a metaphorical thing, yes. meaning when they're open to talking to you and you are not there, let's say they come home from school and it's 4 o'clock and they've come home really in distress. It's not any different than a 0 to 3-year-old child. They're needing tending in that moment. Once the door closes, you can't come in and knock on their door and say, I'm here now, talk to me, because it's on their time, not yours. So I'm going to say it's a little like gambling. <laughs> the more present you are physically uh, and emotionally for your teenager, the greater the chance you'll be there when the door opens. Are there things that you can do? So let's say, like, I wasn't home when my kids came home from school, but I would talk to them every day, and then if they said, then I would say, you know, when I get home, we'll spend time together. We'll go through this. So that I would touch them a little bit like how how, 
because not everybody's able to be there or your kids, they, they run off to practice or whatever it is. So are there tactics that you can have to try and stay connected, be available, let them know that you're there and then create environments? Well, I mean, other than the first being be there as much as possible. So what I say in both both of my books is more is more. The more emotionally and physically yes. available you are, the better. Okay. But if you come home and the door is closed, most parents will ask me, what, you know, what do I do? If the door is closed, both re- in a real way and yes. metaphorically, what do I do? Yes. And the idea is that you can knock on the door, and absolutely you should knock on the door, if your child sends you packing, cause they, because again, it's not now not on their time. You right. can say, I'm here now. I'm here and my door is open to you. And I want to listen to you and hear what your day was like. And I, and a lot of the same things that you do with very young children, you do with older children to regulate them. You use touch to regulate. So there's two kinds of regulation. There's primary regulation and there's secondary regulation. Primary regulation is eye contact, touch, um, using your voice in a calm and um, reflective way. Um, So these are what we call nonverbal things that we can do with our children. And some children are not that comfortable with touch. So then you go to secondary regulation. And secondary regulation is using your imagination as a parent to interpret what happened to your child that day. And you always say the best word that a parent can have in their toolbox is, I wonder. I wonder if you're feeling sad because of the tests that you took today. So the one thing I can say to parents of either very young children or adolescents is know your child. Spend the time knowing your child's schedule, knowing what they're, what tests they're ta- down to what tests they're taking that day. Um, that is not intrusive. That's being a knowing parent, meaning when you ask them, how was your day, the answer you're going to get is fine. But when you ask them very specifically, I know you took a math test today. How did it go? Did you do as well as you thought you would? I'm wondering if you're sad because the math test was harder than you thought. That's a very different question. And that child is going to respond to you and you're knowing them. They're not going to respond to the first question, which is how was your day? So know your child and when you do come home, be a knowing parent and ask very pointed and specific questions and reflect, use your imagination to imagine what they're feeling and put it into words. So in your book, you talk about that women um, in the zero to three, and I don't know about later on, but the oxytocin that women produce, that there's something unique in the mother-child relationship and the mother's ability yeah. to soothe the child. And it's it's physiological and chemical and biological. Um, so. What role do fathers, like, can fathers play in this as well? Like, that, do they have a role in this? Obviously, they're fathers and they've got relationships with the kids, but um, talk about the fathers in this for a minute. So, and, and by the way, oxytocin is something from the very beginning, but it also is something for parents of teenagers. We produce oxytocin as women. Um, it's connected to our hormones and it is, we say, Women produce more, mothers produce more oxytocin, and it comes from a different part of the brain than when men produce oxytocin, because fathers can produce oxytocin too. Um, but it comes from a different part of the brain, and for the most part, the behavior associated with this hormone, what we call the love hormone, when we touch our babies, when we look at our babies, when we breastfeed, 
Um, it, it is something, and it's also in giving birth. Oxytocin is produced, and it helps us to bond with our babies. But it's specifically tied to sensitive, empathic behaviors in mothers, meaning mothers are, are very innately, naturally, biologically good at tuning into a baby's pain um, and soothing the baby with their pain. So an example of that might be a baby falls down, a mother's oxytocin, a flood of oxytocin in a mother might make that mother lean into the baby and empathically ask the baby if they're okay and give the baby a hug and soothe the baby's distress. Um, when fathers produce oxytocin, it makes them more what we call playfully, tactily stimulating. It makes them throw the baby up in the air or tickle the baby or want to play or even distract the baby away from pain. So it's not that fathers can't produce oxytocin. It just it, it behaves differently in their bodies and in their nurturing than in a mother. Um, fathers produce a different hormone, more of a different home hormone called vasopressin, which makes them protectively aggressive. Um, and, and that's also critical, and that's a critical part of separation. So fathers are very important to help babies to separate from their mothers at the right time and play and explore the world um, and become more resilient over time. But in the first three years, we know that sensitive empathic nurturing is more critical to that right brain development. Um, so fathers can become more like mothers. We know this. We can teach fathers to become more like mothers. That means with very young children and even with teenagers, not to dismiss feelings, not to push self-sufficiency and resilience on them, but to actually tune into the pain and listen to the pain and reflect that child's feelings. So they can play a role then again as we're trying because connecting, sometimes I found when my kids were in their teens, it wasn't necessarily good cop, bad cop. It was like good cop, good cop. Whose turn was it today? Right. And sometimes my kids, I, I, you know, there's something also uniquely tense about the mother-daughter relationship and some, you know, that... Um, so they, you get the best of them and the worst of them, right? So if they had a bad day, sometimes they take it out on me uniquely as well. So sometimes my husband would be better at stepping into situations. So there, to me, it's a tag team thing in terms of this emotional regulation and helping the it adolescents is. to develop. Well, it is. I mean, I mean, you'd say even in zero to three. So if a father is playing with a baby to encourage exploration, the mother is there to be the touchstone for security. So you'd say there's always, so even if you have, let's say a gay couple, and I treat gay couples and they come and they say, what do we do? Because we're you know, two men or two women. Right. And I say, well, one of you has to be the mother and one of you has to be the father, metaphorically. Meaning one of you has to take on the role of being that primary caregiver who provides that baby with that emotional security. The other has to take on the role of encouraging separation and exploration and playful tactile stimulation. And, you know, so we know we can learn some of these things, um, but that, that doesn't eliminate kind of the biological hormonal influences. And yes, we're very complementary to one another um, in terms of nurturing. And so it does make it critical that we have um, you know, more than one influence in a child's life. Right. Okay. Let's talk one other thing. I'm going to call it door opener. So, um, again, I found that, so again, you come home, the door's closed, whatever, but there were certain situations that parents can kind of set up where the kids might be more open to talking. 
I loved driving with the kids. Somehow you never knew what came out on long car rides. Yeah. You know, walking the dog. Yeah. Um, you know, what are, are there other suggestions that you have of things that parents can try to create places where their kids will talk cooking together do you want to come help me stir the make the soup whatever like are there are there other suggestions that you have about that yeah so i mean that's it's also a good point shoulder to shoulder activities meaning just doing things together again everything you just said requires just spending time together so the more time you spend and the more of a good listener you are i don't know there was an old expression i remember you know, we have one mouth and two ears. That means we're supposed to listen twice as much as we're supposed to talk. So the, the concept that being there as much as possible also means walking the dog, cooking together. Um, you know, when you come home as a parent, put your technology away. Um, remove, and this is the same for very young children. Leave your computers and your phones and the TV and leave all the technology off. Um, it leaves a space to really communicate with your children. Um, and again, being present means that you're doing more things together. You're walking the dog, you're sitting on the couch, you're um, cooking dinner. Um, and I'm gonna say spending individual time with your children. So one of the things that we have in our cultural kind of, um, sort of the way we think about our culture in this country is eating meals together all as a family. And that sounds like a great thing, right? Sounds great. But remember, you bring family dynamics into a dinner table where you're all eating together. So sometimes the idea is spend individual time with each child. They're more likely to open up to you if they're not in what we call the family clusterfuck. If they're not all together um, and dealing with sibling rivalry issues and rivalry for parents' attention and old issues, you know, really, even though it's lovely, the idea of a family dinner table, don't force that on teenage children. Have individual time with them. Take them out for dinner yourself once a week. Go out to, doesn't have to be a fancy dinner, go out for fast food, you know, um, or a picnic, or but, but individual time with each child. So do you see when families take this on and parents spend the time with their children, that they're able to get their children, just to cycle back to the start of this and the over-medication, that they're able to get their children off of these dangerous yes. and you know, wrongly prescribed medications? Yes, the answer is yes, but not generally not alone. Meaning by the time that your child has gotten to a point that they're um, being medicated, um, you often need help. And, and again, I'm not, I'm realistic. I understand that there's not nearly as much help in this country. Uh, there, there are articles that are coming out about how kids who go to college don't have nearly as much help as they need in the college situations, meaning there's not enough mental health care workers and services for all of the kids that need help right now. Having said that, um, seek it out. I mean, because by the time your child is on some kind of medication that's been prescribed, um, you know, too, too early on or, or by a pediatrician rather than a mental health care worker, you're going to need help from, from a therapist. So I'm going to say seek out help. But yeah, I mean, there are real changes that I see in my practice when families who have medicated their children really work hard to understand the dynamics underneath the child's behavior. And that empathy for their child is critical in changing that child's behavior. 
Yeah, well, and I think, and I want to, you just made the comment about the increasing number of, of kids going into college that have mental or emotional issues. But going, the whole premise of this is that we wouldn't have as many kids with those issues yeah. if we were spending the time and paying the attention yeah, to the children right. early on. All right. and, and having empathy. I mean, I think of my book as just increasing. I mean, most parents would say they love their children. I would say that in treating um, adolescents and in treating adults, the biggest complaint is not that their parents don't love them or that their parents didn't love them. The biggest complaint is that their parents didn't understand them. And that nuance is what causes most forms of depression, anxiety, mental illness. So, you know, the idea that we as parents have to take more time to understand our children, not just love them. We can love them. We always want to love them. But we also need to understand them. And by understanding their feelings by understanding what causes the behavior on a very deep level we're understanding them that's great all right erica commissar we could talk forever your book being there why prioritizing motherhood in the first three years matters i look forward to the new book and we'll <laughs> send it along when it's ready because we'll write articles about Parenting it in the age of anxiety yeah i will i'll send it along great all right and commissar.com is your website thank you so much erica i really appreciate thank it thank you thank you for having me I'm talking to Erica Commissar, psychoanalyst and author of the book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years of Life Matters. Erica's worked with children and families to overcome the growing epidemic of over-medicated children in a world that treats their psychosocial challenges with prescription pads instead of emotional support and behavioral training. Erica understands that creating balanced physical and emotional health is about creating a healthy environment in which to grow and not simply about dialing chemicals up or down. Her message is just one from the thousands of experts featured in our twice monthly newsletter, Bottom Line Personal. These experts provide their advice to guide readers into action in their own lives. In addition to Erica's wisdom regarding depression and other psychosocial issues, Bottom Line Personal is filled with actionable advice on all aspects of your life, including traveling safer and cheaper, finding the best insurance, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, secrets for getting and staying fit, and even travel to little known destinations. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP that's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP.